I want to pick up where we were last week. Last week we were talking about 1 John. And I, I was talking with the guys, the pastors this morning. We, we meet for prayer every Wednesday morning in here and kind of walk around, pray for all of you. And you know what's funny? It's, it's easy to walk through the auditorium and I know who sits here and I know who sits here. It is funny that way. We kind of map ourselves out and, uh, and we pray. And so we were talking about tonight and I was just sharing with them. I don't think I, in all 30 some years I've ever studied to preach 1 John. I've read 1 John many times, but never looked at it as a, something to learn from. I think, I think as I read it in the past, I would always read it as, well, this is John, and it felt, sounds very like John, like, like John the Gospel, and like, I mean, it just sounds so familiar as you read it, because we probably heard a lot of familiar verses out of 1 John. And so as we were reading it, as I've been, been looking at it, it's really been a different way to look at that book. And I would encourage you, any chance you get, any time God puts on your heart to study a book or a portion of Scripture... Do it. He wants to show us things that maybe we had not seen before, see it in a new way. And as we talked about last week, this portion, this book, is one of the latest books that was added to the New Testament. It was one of the last books written, probably around the 90s AD. So that would have been 60-some years after Christ's death. And John was the last living disciple. This would have been before he was uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos and boiled in oil and all of that. And also then wrote the book of Revelation, would have been before that, but right before. Would have been immediately before that. At this point, he was still living in Ephesus, which is in, in modern-day Turkey, that area of the world, where he was the church father over that area. He was the bishop of that entire area. And, and being the last living disciple, he was incredibly revered and referred to as the elder. They called him the elder during those years. And then he writes to the church as his dear children. And as he writes, this, this particular letter is different in a little ways just because it wasn't written to one church. He wrote it to all of us, to the entire church. And during this time, you need to keep in mind also that the persecution of Christianity was in full swing. Christians were being persecuted uh, all the time during this period. And um, so when he writes and mentions those kinds of things, it's, it's with meaning. Now, last week, we talked about uh, chapter 1 in 1 John, and that was mostly about us taking stock of our sin in our own lives. Then he shifts... In this book, and what's interesting, you don't necessarily see it in the English because we translate different words differently in context, even though it's the same word sometimes. So in the chapter two, he actually uses the word abiding over, or he uses it 10 times. And it's translated different ways those 10 times. In verses six to 27, he uses that word abide 10 times, which you could be translated, and it is translated differently. It's translated abide, remain, live, dwell, and what it's talking about is having a close, intimate relationship with the Father. Think about John for a minute. One of the favorite disciples, and as we talked about last week, he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He gives us a peek into the inner workings of that group of the disciples as they lived and, and worked with Jesus. He had an intimate relationship with Jesus. You could say he was Jesus' best friend. Now, Jesus didn't say that. John said that. So got to take that for what it's worth. But... That has, that has transmitted down to us all these years later. My point is that he knew what a good friendship meant. And since he had followed Christ all during that time as a disciple, and then he was one of the early uh, founders of the church, and he lived the longest, his relationship with Christ would have been something akin to probably some of the spiritual leaders you revere in your life. And there's probably somebody in your life that you look up to and think of as a spiritual father or spiritual mother. That's who he would have been. 
So when he refers to an intimate relationship with God, it means something a little different than somebody who's maybe only been a Christian a few years. You know people like that, right? They, you know, and I don't, I don't believe that, I don't believe that, that um, it necessarily takes everybody years and years and years to get to know Christ well. But there is something different about having walked with Christ intimately for a long time. There is a difference. There's something about it when you know him, you know what to expect. Your relationship with him is not new. It's not flash in the pan. It's not up and down. It's something that goes on and on and on. That word abide, using it all those times, it reminds me of John, um, I believe it's John 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in the vine. He talks about for us to live like that, we have to abide in him and be connected to him. I'm sure John was thinking the same thing. Because he would have heard that sermon. You know, Jesus, uh, really what he did, would he would travel place to place to place. And it wasn't like he was a, a pastor at a church where you have something new every week, something new Sunday, something new Wednesday. He would have sermons that he would use over and over and over because he was wanting to communicate a message to all those people up and down throughout Israel. So John would have heard that sermon, which we think of as John 15, over or yeah, John 15, over and over. Would have been something he would have been familiar with. So it's no wonder that he would use that word abide and talk about how important it was for us to abide in Christ because it would have been a message that would have been consistent to him. So let's take a look at this. I'm talking about this. In this chapter, he talks about loving right and loving wrong and the differences. So we'll look at that in a minute. He says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Wouldn't it be nice if you read this and it meant you never sinned again? I mean, seriously, if I could write something to my son and say, I'm writing this to you so you never make a mistake. Man, wouldn't that be great? We know better, but wouldn't that be great? That's his desire, though. And isn't that your desire for your children and the people you know? You don't want them to fail. You don't want them to make a mistake. You want to prevent that as much as possible. So you give as much instruction as, as you can, as they will endure from us, so that that doesn't happen. I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but... If anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Those two verses are packed so full of theology, it's amazing. So much of what we think of, of Scripture, is packed into there. Let's just start with the if, if we sin. You know you're going to sin. You don't want to. God forbid, it's, hopefully it's nothing serious. But the fact is, we do make mistakes here and there. The first thing he said in that, that, those two verses is we have an advocate. We need an advocate. We need somebody who comes alongside of us. I mean, advocate would be the same word that we would use, of course, as a lawyer today. I don't know if you've ever needed a lawyer, but when you need a lawyer, you need a lawyer. We had this experience a couple years ago when my, my father, his, we could tell his memory was going, and we, we were trying to be proactive, and we needed to do something about it. So as I was talking with my mom, you know, what we did is we, uh, we, we hired a, a lawyer, an elder law firm. And I remember the discussion with her, because she was, it's money. It's money. And she said, but, but couldn't we find this information out another way? It's a good question to ask. And then there were people who were giving her advice here and there and here and there. And since they're in San Diego and I'm here, I said, look, mom, there's a reason you hire a lawyer. 
because we don't know this stuff. And I'm sorry, but the people giving you advice, I don't know them. And I don't, you can't trust that. You have to find somebody who really knows. And we have a lawyer who goes to the church, and I love it. I've been standing there different times where someone will come up and they'll say, hey, could you write a will for me? And, and Aaron is so good about this. He'll say, I could, and I am a lawyer, but you don't want me to write in a will for you. That's not what I do. And he would recommend somebody who does that. And he says, if you hire somebody who does that, they're going to catch the things that I may not know or be up on or the latest. And, and that's what they do. When you sin, you need an advocate. You need somebody who is specially qualified to go to the Father on your behalf. And then what it says he does, let's, go, let's just look back at that verse, those two verses. If, if someone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Now, what do you think he does? Do you think Jesus, let's say Deb sins, which is not, pipe, not likely, but let's say she did sin. Do you think Jesus goes before the Father and says, God, look, seriously, Dad, she didn't do it. Is that what he does? No, because I can't imagine it, but you probably have sinned, right? Right? I mean, it's not as if he goes and says, hey, she didn't do it. What he does is, look what it says here. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. When I read that line, you know what I think of? I think of the woman caught in adultery, that entire story. You know what he was doing? He was pleading her case, not saying she was innocent. What he did was, as you read through that story, and the the woman caught in adultery, remember what he says? You who is without sin, cast the first stone. Who was the only one without sin there? Him. He's the only one qualified to throw the stone. And the fact is, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. When he pleads our case, what he does is... Is he's, he's telling, because I know Deb would have asked for forgiveness, and he says, she's already asked for forgiveness. So my sacrifice that I applied to her sin literally cancels the sin. Jesus was the only one who could have thrown the stone, and he chose grace over judgment. And that's what he does. He chooses, chooses grace over over uh, judgment. Now, that, that verse right there where it says, he himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sin... In some translations, maybe older translations, they would use a very formal word called propitiation. You familiar with that word? <laughs> that doesn't, you don't really work that into very many sentences today, but, <laughs> but it literally means that he puts himself in our place. He becomes our stand-in for our punishment and for our sin. That's what he does. He is the stand-in, the only one who is righteous, the one who would never need this. He does it for us. That blows my mind. And I think more about, I mean, you've got that word propitiation. One thing you need to understand about that, he is the atoning sacrifice that holds back God's judgment. He literally puts himself in our place. He's more, here's something you need to understand also, he's more than a covering. I I know this is kind of technical jargon, but in the Old Testament, when people would sin and sacrifice an animal, that just covered their sin. There's a difference. This says he he takes our sin away. There's a difference. And that's why the animal sacrifice was only just, just an image of what was to come. It was a shadow of what Jesus would do once for all. When he pays for the sin, it's canceled, done, out, over, gone. You know what it reminds me of is this verse. In, in, first, in John one twenty nine Again, it's John one twenty nine And I have to think he was thinking about all these things. He wrote this. He heard this said. 
Who said, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world? You remember? John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, takes away the sin, away, away. Now, we're not Catholics, but maybe you have a Catholic background. Does anybody know what that is? Symbol of? If you ever go to Europe or maybe a Catholic church, you may see the symbol. And, and what, one thing that we miss probably in our, in our churches, Evangelical or Assembly of God churches, we don't have a lot of symbolism. But the symbolism is good because it teaches, it teaches things that we miss a little bit. This is the Agnes Day, And Agnes Day literally means the Lamb of God. So if you ever see the symbol anywhere in a church or anywhere, it is the Lamb of God. You'll see he's holding there uh, that image of the cross, and there's the Lamb, and he's on the altar. And you can see that in a lot of versions, but he is that lamb, that sacrificial lamb of God, the Agnes Day. That's who he is. It's a powerful, powerful image. Behold the lamb of God. Something else I like about that verse, I'm going to go back to it. See that last part? Not only our sins, but the sins of the world. You know what that's a reminder of? The Jews were supposed to spread the good news about God and the one true God. They didn't do that a whole lot. They did it a little bit. We've talked about it here and there. You know, the, the, the lady in Jericho, the, you know, Ruth. I mean, there's a few. But for most of it, they kept it to themselves. John is reminding the church here, it's not just us. It's for everybody. This isn't about just getting us, ourselves fixed and healed and saved and go to heaven. Us four no more, shut the door. That's why we say at our church, everyone matters to God. Everyone matters. We want to always be outward focused, not, not inward secluded. It's not about that. It, it, the church is never full. I don't care if this room's full. There's another church that needs filled. I mean, people need to know the Lord. People need him, desperately need him. This is about evangelism, and everybody needs that salvation that we enjoy. Everybody needs it. Agnes Day, again, right there. Let's look into the next verse. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. That's pretty harsh language right there. Here's how I'd rather say it, is your steps prove your faith. It's kind of like love is supposed to be an action word. Well, forgiveness is action too. The way you live illustrates and demonstrates whether or not you've been changed or not. It's just just true. You practice your eternal life now going forward. Everything you do is is basically a proof of your belief system. The way you live is a proof of that. It's evidence of what's in your heart. Now, on the one hand, we're, we're told not to judge, right? What he's saying here is judge yourself. Do your actions reveal what your heart, if your heart has changed or not. Because if your heart has changed, your actions will be different. He's just saying, look, take a look. Take a look and see. And maybe you've heard it this way, that your actions speak so loud I can't hear a word you're saying. Now, this is not James, where James says, put up or shut up. He says, kind of like really direct. But it's John's way of saying the same thing. If you're, if you're a Christian and you've been forgiven, it will show in the way you act. Look at the next verse, or two verses. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. I like this because he literally points to Jesus and says, Jesus' life is the standard of how we love. You know, St. Augustine said it like this, love God and then do whatever you want. 
that's not a license to sin. The fact is, if you love God, every, whatever you want to do would be the right thing. It's always going to be the right thing because you're going to do it out of love for him. You're never going to violate any of that because you love him. Obedience leads to intimacy and vice versa. Sometimes it's hard to get our minds around because I think as Christians in modern Christianity, we kind of get the idea of following rules. It's not about that. It's about relationship. Well, guess what? Relationship leads to following the rules. You don't even need to know what the rules are because you want to follow them. They come naturally out of your behavior. Your behavior, you won't even have to think about it. I know what the right thing to do is because it'd be whatever he wants me to do. Let's look at the next couple of verses, or next verse. Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment, to love one another, is the same message you heard before. Then he goes on and he says, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. I like what John does here. He says, he says it's an old commandment. You've heard this all your life. The Jews knew this commandment. He, he's saying that. Then he says, he says but it is kind of new because Jesus lived it out. Think about how Jesus lived. When he was on this earth, think about how he lived. He was kind to the downtrodden. He reached out to those who were rejected by the establishment. He challenged the establishment to change their ways. That's how he lived. He didn't, he didn't strike anybody. He didn't, he didn't fight back when he was uh, that lamb that was slain. That's how he lived. He lived in a way that was remarkably and drastically different than anybody else. Here's what he's saying is, he's saying this, that brotherly love is the hallmark of the Christian life. I had to throw that hallmark in for our Kansas City folks. Jesus... Jesus is saying brotherly love is the standard of the Christian life. Brotherly love. You know, I think about this often, how radically different the message of Christianity is than every other religion, and how radically different it was for the day they lived. It was very survival-oriented in their day. In fact, if you were not a Roman citizen, your chances of survival were really slim, and and your chance of a good life was pretty slim. Everybody else, it was dog-eat-dog and tooth and claw and get what you could get. And Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies and be kind to those who despitefully use you and give to the poor, right? Radical, radical, upside down thinking. I mean, it's so different, so different than the world system then. And it's so different than the world system today. I mean, the world continually pushes selfishness and, and pride and bragging and, and, and putting down others and Yet Christianity is radically, radically, radically different. I think of what Paul says in Philippians. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Who does that? Christians do that. And if you're struggling with that, you need to check yourself. Let's, let's talk about a little of the love wrong part, because now he's going to challenge us to, to, to live against the way the world tells us to live. We all know that knowing God is... It's great, isn't it? But isn't it hard? I mean, we could be honest for a minute. Sometimes it's difficult. And, and maybe you're one of those who this just all comes easy to. God bless you. I want to be more like you. But there's times where it's difficult. And the fact is, you know, as we struggle with this at times, you have to remember that, that we're living in a world that continually tries to seduce us spiritually. It, it's, I use that word on purpose. Seduce is one of those words I don't know that I've used publicly very often because it sounds so sexualized. But we live in a sexualized world, and the world is trying to seduce us. 
constantly, constantly. And when I say the world, I know, you know, you're probably thinking, well, the world isn't a thing. But, you know, there is a spirit in the world that is the enemy, and he's constantly after our souls. His objective is to destroy you, not just to get you on his side. He wants to destroy you. He wants to humiliate you and destroy you. And if you think about this for a minute, um, I think about this from time to time, you know, how we kind of get things backward in the way we think and we just say them a certain way. You know, like we say the sun comes up and you know the sun doesn't come up, right? I heard a mom try, she was, she was teaching her, it was you, talking to her children about that and they had it right. They'd obviously talked about it. The sun doesn't come up, the world is, that we're sitting on is turning, right? And how many times have you thought about a fish out of water? I mean, what are they doing? They're drowning in air, which is backward for us. But think about this. We're kind of like that. We're kind of like that fish that is completely surrounded by the world. I mean, everywhere you go outside of this room, I mean, when you go out into the world, you're surrounded by life, uh, by a life and a world and values that are counter, counter to Christianity. And they're continually pulling at you. Every TV show is full of, of messages and, 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 and you still watch them and I don't think it's wrong necessarily, but I'm just saying that there's always going to be something in there. I mean, just, I was watching that new 24. You guys, anybody seen that? And as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, another homosexual couple on the show. Why? 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 People, I mean, people who struggle with that, I mean, reasonably, how many, what percentage of the population? But think about it, it's every show. Why? Because it's being pushed, it's being preached. It's, they're trying to push that on you and try to normalize it over and over and over. Think about how many shows you've watched where either the leads or any movie, don't they always end up in bed? And what consequences do they suffer for that? And I'm talking about the natural consequences. Not even disease and all that, but, but even destruction of relationships. You never see that. It's always glamorized, like that's the goal and that's the thing, and life goes on and everything's wonderful. That's the world we live in. Every magazine you walk by in the, in the checkout counter, I mean, everything like that, that's the world we live in. The news you watch, everything. It's like we're swimming in this world, but we're, we're challenged to swim the different direction. God doesn't ask us to jump out of the water. He wants us in this world. He wants us in there, but he wants us swimming differently. I was just... Thinking of that imagery, and I, I, I grabbed these pictures. Can you imagine one of them swimming the other way? How would they even do that? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. They couldn't. They're just going along with the flow. And if they were to swim the other way, it would be a dramatic difference for them, and they would have to fight everybody. It'd be so hard. How do you do that? When the whole world is headed that direction, we're challenged to fight that flow and sing, swim the other way. I think of... Think of how difficult that kind of thing is. And, w- and what, what John challenges us to do is to literally level up. So he does a little encouraging. At the end of that last verse, he tried to encourage. He said, you are a light in the world, and the darkness is being extinguished. Think about that for a minute philosophically. John was the philosopher. You think about the Gospels. You know, the, the other three, the three um, they, they call them the synoptic Gospels because they're so similar. And then you've got John. And he starts off philosophical. In the beginning was the word. What is word? Word is a Greek concept that the, that the words themselves had life and creative power. Every Greek who heard that would have known what he meant. 
And he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Then he talks about him being light. He uses that imagery. And then here he says, the light is extinguishing the darkness. Think about that. Is darkness even a thing? I mean, we think of it as a thing, and we attach it to evil because that's just how our minds go. But is darkness a thing? Isn't it just an absence of light? I mean, really? Darkness itself isn't an entity that that puts itself on people, but he uses that, and he says that light extinguishes the darkness. You know how powerful light is. I was reading about this because I'm a geek. Um, They're saying that a single match in a clear night, you know, without mist or anything like that, can be seen up to eight miles away. You know, the curvature of the earth, you start to lose curvature at 12 miles. Eight miles is a long way. I don't know that I could see that, actually, with my eyes today. But when I read it, eight miles, I wanted to try it out, and I didn't, of course, do that. But I'm thinking eight miles is a long way. And I thought, well, let's do it in here. And I was going to turn all the lights off on you and do that with a match. But, you know, we got the emergency lights and all, and I didn't want to freak anybody out. But think about that for a minute. Light literally extinguishes darkness. That's the power of the relationship with Jesus that he's trying to communicate to you. When you have that intimate relationship with him, there's a light in you that extinguishes the darkness all around. And do you think the darkness is going to be happy about that? No, it's not. You're going to have to fight and you're going to have to struggle to do what's right. Because that's just the life we live in, just like this. You're going to swim against that flow constantly. So John challenges the people to level up then. And as we look at this next verse, he says, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. That's good, isn't it? It's good. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, give them any extra power or, or kudos. He says, you're just beginning. Your sins have been removed. That's a start. It's a start. Uh, I don't remember now the speaker we had Sunday, Drew. I don't remember if he said this Sunday or Saturday night. But I, I've mentioned to you, you know, we, we so often, we, at least in the past, the church has had all these things. You know, if you're going to come to church, you've got to clear up all the sins that you're doing and be good enough to be with us. Remember how we used to be? You have to dress right, look right. Don't, don't uh, what was that saying? Um, uh, smoke, cuss, chew, or go with girls who do. Remember that? You guys never heard that? <laughs> Is it a California thing, maybe? I guess, I don't know. That's what I heard growing up, and it was a joke then, but it was an attitude we had as a church, right? But now we look at it more like, we need to get people in. We need to catch some fish, and then let God clean them. And then Drew added a new twist. He said, uh, and again, I don't remember if he said this Sunday or Saturday, but he said, he said you don't clean fish before you catch them. Can't, you can't even do that, Right? You catch them and then clean them. And that's the thing. That's what it is. It says here that, that you're ch- uh, God's children because you, your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. Isn't it interesting that he keeps repeating that in just a few verses? He keeps talking about forgiveness through Jesus. People needed to be reminded about that and to know that he was the source of forgiveness. And that it was his sin that was a propitiation for us. I mean, his... His blood was a propitiation for our sin. So then he takes another step up and he says, I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. He just throws that in. By the way, Jesus is eternal. Just throws that in, you know. Remember why he was doing that? We talked about it last week. 
Because there was already people creeping into the church trying to change what we knew about Jesus. Trying to say he wasn't even a real person or, or maybe he was just a ghost that lived among us for a while. Or they were trying to say, <clears throat> even later they said, he, w- he wasn't actually divine because only God is divine and Jesus was just his servant. I mean, there's a lot of things that have tried to creep into the church, so it, it, it makes sense that John would throw this in. Who existed from the beginning? That's actually even a run-on, isn't it? Sense? I don't even know. Because you know Christ, that no is an experiential no. You, ex- you, you know him through experience when you're mature in the faith because you've known him for a while. You've been, been knowing him, my friends would say. Then he says, I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. As I was studying this a little bit, they were saying that that, that young in the faith because you've won your battle with the evil one was probably related to, to the culture that they lived in was so sexually deviant that the young people of that time had to win that battle because the temptation was huge all around and expected for them to participate. So for them, those young in the faith had to win that battle with the evil one. It's interesting. He's telling them, you need to level up. He says here that children know the father and they know their sins are forgiven. Young men are strong in the word so they can stand against the evil one. And then the fathers, the mature ones, have an intimate knowledge of God. He goes on in in verse 15, he says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. It's interesting because he's not saying to leave the world. He's just saying, don't love it. You know how it is when you really like something, but you know it's not good for you? It could be ice cream. I mean, it's not. He's talking about serious things. But that's a good example. Because you love it, but you know it's not good. I was talking to somebody in the hospital this, this last week, and they were talking about all the things they're going to have to change in their lifestyle. It was one of those wake-up calls, you know. And they just said, um, man, I don't know. I'm going to have to give up this and this and this. You could just see in their eyes. It was just this sadness. And I could relate. And I'm, and I'm standing there dishonest to God truth. I'm sorry. I'm just standing there thinking, oh, God, I'm glad it's you and not me. <laughs> I don't want to give that stuff up. But it's sad when those things are, are moral things that are going to hurt you and, and ruin your faith. And those are things that are going to separate you from relationship with God and others and people you love and lead you into deeper and deeper sin. And you don't even realize how far you're sinking because you love it. And it's killing you. <laughs> I, I, was, I was reminded of Romans 12 when I was reading that. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person By changing the way you think. Now, this is the New Living Translation. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Of course, in other translations, it says conform. Pressed into a form or a system that the world has. That's the world does. They're so judgmental. And they have such a a way that you have to live. Because if you live different, it makes them feel so uncomfortable. When I was reading this and it says copy the behavior, I was thinking copy, conform. Yeah, it's the same thing. And we copy their behavior so often just to fit in or to be part of what's going on. And we don't realize how we're compromising over and over and over. And if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. John says, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. 
These are not from the Father, but from this world. It's funny, you don't think about the world attacking you, do you? But it is. It's attacking you in such a subtle way. And it, and it lures us, and, it, and it's, it's a sensual thing, and it, it, it's a craving for physical pleasure. In the older translations, it, it calls it a lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Most you know, newer Christians or newer people to the word, they wouldn't understand that phrase. So that's why I put it in this, this translation where it says a craving. You don't often think of lust and craving in the same terms, but it's the same thing. Lust of the flesh is a craving for physical pleasure. And that's, the world is all about that. They advertise it. They build it up to be something that it's not over and over and over. A craving for everything we see. In the older translations, it would say a lust of the eyes, which is actually covetousness and, and envy. We want things. We crave for everything we see. Things that other people have or things we think we should have or we're entitled to. And we crave it. A craving, a pride in our achievements and possessions. The older versions would say a pride of life, which is self-exaltation over the things we have. Those aren't the things. Those aren't the things. And John says that this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. You know, at this point in John's life, he was really old. He was really old. He was at the point where he'd probably seen... All of his friends pass away. Everybody he knew, all of his contemporaries were gone. He was the only one left. He knew what it meant to fade away. Even his own life at some level was fading away. But what he was really talking about is how those pleasures, he'd probably seen over and over and over, how they were hollow and meaningless. And it's one thing as an older man to see that, but he's trying to warn us younger ones, don't get caught in those traps. They're just going to fade away. I thought of that old song, Dust in the Wind. We, we, we grasp over these things and they're meaningless. They won't give you the pleasure. It's a lie. It's a lie. He, he goes on and he just says, he says, dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already many such Antichrists have appeared. Now, this is before he writes the book of Revelation, where he writes about the Antichrist. But he calls these people antichrists because what they believe, what they teach, what they, what they push you toward, what they, what they value is against Christ and everything that Christ stood for. And from this, we know that the last hour has come. And then he goes on to say, these people left. He's talking about individuals who had left their churches but, but never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. And when they left it, they proved that they did not belong to us. He's not talking about just casual people who go to a different church or anything like that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who were false teachers. They were already in the world, false teachers. And they were separating people from the truth. And he talks about them being spiritual counterfeits and how they were all around us. He goes on. I, I want to kind of go through the rest of this chapter real quick. But you are not like that. For the Holy One has given you his spirit and all of you know the truth. That's good, isn't it? All of you know the truth. He says, so I'm writing to you not because, uh, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. That's, again, some encouragement he gives us. And I appreciate him doing that because what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit literally enables us to know the truth. And, and, and that reminded me of, again, John. 
in the book of John where he says, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. That's John. John wrote both those things. He's saying that you have the Holy Spirit in you and you can trust what the Holy Spirit tells you. But let me just give you a little warning about that. The fact is the Holy Spirit does warn us. And there are things that maybe you watch or maybe you see or maybe you've done or people you've been in a relationship with and the Holy Spirit warns you and says, it's not good for you. You know, if you ignore that enough, you're not going to hear it anymore. It's not that he doesn't speak. It's just you won't hear it. You will become immune to what he's trying to say. Just be warned because you do have the Holy Spirit and you can trust him to guide you. It's a powerful thing. Very powerful thing. The fact is, though, that there's false teachers. And he goes on in the rest of this chapter and he says, there's false teachers who deny the truth about Christ. That's in in chapters uh, 22 to 23. Um, Then he says um, that no one who denies the truth about Jesus has relationship with the Father. And then he says, our only hope is to be deeply grounded in the word of God. And again, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit teaches us the truth about God. Here's what I want you to remember from tonight. Here's what I want you to remember. We have a way and we know how to keep ourselves pure and how to reach a dying and needy world. First of all, we're supposed to live a transparent life. We're supposed to be honest about the sin and what's going on in our lives. Secondly, we're supposed to obey God's commands and to love our Christian brothers. What I love about this is he tells us there's two things. You know the teaching, you know the truth, and then you have the Holy Spirit in you to guide you. Here's what I'd like us to do for a minute. I'd like you to just shut your eyes for a second. And I want you to think through these thoughts. The fact is, John ties these two things together. Not only should we be be relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us and and to warn us about sin, but then to also know that that's going to be a source of evangelism for people who need to know. They're going to watch you and see how you respond to the world and to the sin. It may not be easy. In fact, it may make you uncomfortable. In fact, it may require you swimming against the flow with the entire world and be the only one doing it. But that's going to stand out to people. And as they see you doing that and they see God working in your heart and mind, they're going to want what you have. Just a fact. They're going to want what you have and they're going to see it and celebrate it and want that relationship that you have. So here's my challenge for you tonight is, as each of you consider this. And maybe, Dave, if you could put some music on for us and... I just want you to consider this for a minute. What is your life like? Last week, we talked about directly about sin, but this week, as we've read John, he challenges us over and over and over to live a life that's worthy. Maybe you need to do some self-reflection. I don't know. Maybe you've heard the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Maybe he has literally done those things that the Bible said he would do that he's convicted you of sin or maybe maybe of God's righteousness or coming judgment. And maybe, maybe you haven't trusted or maybe you didn't even know he was there and speaking to you. But I know how it works. If you would just tell him, God, I am sorry for whatever I've done wrong. I want you to cleanse me, make me new, make me clean. I want to be attuned and hear your spirit speak. He speaks. That will never change. He... He actually wants you to live righteous more than you do. And he wants that for you. God, I pray for us tonight, for every one of us. As your spirit speaks to our spirit, 
God, I pray that you would make us more in tune with you tonight than we ever have been. If there's things that we need to clear up or, or, or things that we need to, to cut out, God, that you would speak clearly to us about that. And God, that we would be more and more and more responsive to your spirit in every possible way. God, I'm humbled that your Holy Spirit even lives in us or speaks to us. And I pray that you would continue to remind us and speak to us and guide us in these things. God, we want nothing more than to abide with you. We want to abide with you. We want our life to be an intimate relationship with you. I pray that you would do that within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to pray if you feel like you need to pray. If, if you feel like you're ready to go, go. But I just want to challenge you to live, live in the Spirit as John has challenged us to do that tonight. God bless you. <laughs>